You have to know if the environment that you're in is a safe enough environment for you to be able to show who you truly are. Like, I want to say, like, you put out there who you are and if people don't like it too bad, but also, like, if you got to pay the bills and have the medical insurance, like, please don't risk that (laughs) because (laughs) you're like wanting to shine too brightly and be like, I have kids and then like have that be compromised. And so there's always this delicate balance of like, what is actually safe to portray in the workplace? And that's so different from one landscape to the next. You're listening to It Gets Late Early, a show about the experience of getting older in the tech industry. I'm your host, Maureen Wiley-Clough. Let's dive in. Welcome to It Gets Late Early. Today I have with me Sarah Dean, who is the host of the Shameless Mom Academy podcast and is herself a shameless mom uh, based also in Seattle, which is fantastic. And we've brought her here today to tell her story, to explain to us how we can also be a little bit more shameless and open in our parenting at work. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I don't get to be with like local people, but also virtually with local people very (laughs) often. Well, Yeah. And as it turns out, maybe that was a miss since we've had like 8 billion technical difficulties prior to this actual beginning here. So next time you're coming right here on this couch, right? Perfect. Perfect indeed. So thank you so much for being here. You know, Sarah, I wanted to bring you on the show because I know that I myself as a woman, as an older woman, have really grappled with my status as a mom and really owning it. And especially in the context of work, right? Like, I remember really, really struggling with the change from being just a regular woman (laughs) to suddenly in charge of another being, right? And I didn't know how to coexist with that status in the workplace and how not to let it get me behind the eight ball. And what I love about your show is you are really all about celebrating just like the good, the bad, and the ugly of parenting. So Tell me a little bit about like the genesis of the podcast, how you came into the space and, and what you do today. Sure. So I, prior to the podcast, I owned a gym in Seattle, a fitness studio on Queen Anne for any Seattle listeners. And which I loved that I loved my fitness business. I had it for many years. I was in the industry for about 15 years. Um, and I loved the community that I built. It was a really significant it is still a significant part of my legacy and and really like grounded a lot of the work that I still do in terms of community building. What I realized though, at a certain point in that business, um, which was shortly after my son was born is I kind of had this like gut instinct feeling that I had maybe built the wrong business or, and, or that my business was no longer aligned with my core values. And so while I was really proud of the business I built, I really, really loved it. I loved the work, the women that I worked with in the community that we had together I also no longer wanted to help women shrink their bodies. And that became this huge realization that once I had it, I couldn't unhave it. (laughs) Yeah, you don't go back from that. I really, and I think part of it was going through that postpartum experience for me and just realizing the amount of time and energy that women spend trying to make their bodies look and be a certain way And what a huge freaking waste it is when there is so much more important work that we have to do as women and as moms and as leaders and all the things. And so I, as a side project, um, while I still have the gym, I decided I wanted to start a podcast that helped 
that created a platform where I could help women take up space. And so in my gym business, everyone was coming to me because they wanted to shrink their bodies. Even as I tried to shift my marketing and stuff and was like, we don't do that anymore. They were still like, no, 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 no. (laughs) But like, how do I lose 10 pounds? (laughs) So I was like doing that in one world while in another world, talking to women and really doing a lot of coaching with women on how to take up space. And I've really, really quickly fell in love with podcasting and with that work. And it became clear to me pretty quickly that I wanted to like I had one foot out the door with the gym fairly quickly because I knew that I had the opportunity to to serve others in a more impactful way that felt more about uh, aligned with my core values just a few months into the, having the podcast. So over time, then I ended up selling the fitness business and going all in on the podcast. But I would say because of the way that a big part of that was going through that experience of becoming a mom in that time was like heavily influenced my decision around that. And this kind of glaring need that like, wow, like the thing I built is no longer the thing I believe in. Wow. Yeah, no, that absolutely resonates with me. And I remember distinctly the time at which I kind of, it kind of hit me what the sort of the diet culture and Mm -hmm. what the just larger societal messaging was and how damaging it was. I, I remember being on a subway in New York city when I was living there. And for some reason, it just like, struck me. I, I remember I was sitting on the, on the subway and I was trying to make myself small. I was crossing my legs. I was mm-hmm. shrinking. You know, I, I was probably on my way to the gym, if not coming from it. Right. Like it was such a core part of being female. And it's always like, how do you take up as little space as possible, literally and figuratively? And mm-hmm. it just kind of, for some reason in that moment, I was like, this is so messed up. Like what a waste of our energy. And and I love that you had that moment and that you create, you pivoted, you did a full on pivot and you went and you built this community that was all about expansion and expansiveness and, and something bigger than self. Like I, that's so cool. And I think I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the people who you serve. Cause you keep mentioning community. Like I want to hear about who your listeners are, who your clients are. Cause I know you have beyond the podcast, also a coaching coaching business. So tell us a little bit more about the people who are in that community and who you serve. Sure. Um, it's, well, it's funny in my mind, it's evolved over time, but I don't actually think it has. So it's evolved over time (laughs) in terms of who I've been aware that I'm serving, but these people have always existed in my community. So when I started the podcast, um, I attracted obviously moms. I attracted moms who were not super young moms. I mean, we definitely have younger moms who are listeners, but I realized that I tend to kind of just in any role I've had, I tend to attract people who are similar to me. So it was more like middle-aged mom crowd, (laughs) which I'm a proud member of. Um, (laughs) and I, I think for a long time, I didn't realize the range of women, but also, um, the like high capacity that my listeners and audience have for leadership and professional development and like ambition and, um, just always working their way up. And again, similar to me, like maybe a little (laughs) obsessively driven, um, and, I didn't realize that because women were coming to when we had community, um, like we had a membership community for a long time. And when we would have members come in and I was coaching them, we weren't talking a lot about, we were talking about identity stuff, but it was more around grounded in their personal lives and in their family lives. And then over the course of years, I started to hear more and more about what they were doing professionally. And I realized I have these like high powered women in this membership community and 
many of them show up with this level of level of vulnerability that has made me believe that or has kind of alluded to like that they don't think that they're confident or that they're worthy or that they're ready for all the things that they're going after. And so I have this belief that like they're not moving up or that they're not that super high up because they have all these self-limiting beliefs. And then what I realized over time is, and in the last few years, I've really, really noticed this. I have a lot of women in my audience who are very high powered women who don't realize their own worth and who are filled with self-doubt and who feel really uncomfortable in their own skin and who don't know that they're worthy or qualified to be in the position that they're in. And they are always kind of second guessing themselves. And so I realized that where I thought I was working with women who were maybe earlier in their careers or starting something new, I had this whole segment that was had worked their way up already, but they weren't like, they felt like a fraud being there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I don't want to say that's a universal experience, but with the women that I work with, I've noticed that it's almost a universal experience. So there's people who struggle with their identity around the power or influence that they have in their positions at every level. And I had this belief and, and, and self-limiting beliefs at every level. And I had a belief that like that only happened in certain places, but not like everywhere and not when you got to a certain level. And it's like, I'm using my hands for those who are just listening, but I'm like you know, <laughs> reaching up toward my ceiling for the women that are like way up here in terms of professional achievement and resume, you know, like gl glowing resume their self-limiting beliefs and confidence is not really any different or better than someone who is maybe at the beginning of their career or much earlier in their career. Wow. That's so wild to conceive of because I know you think you see other people doing these wonderful things and you admire them and you think, wow, if only it could get there, then I'll have made it. And you're telling us that those very people that are at the peak of their career, at the top of their games, they're still struggling with imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a work issue you just can't seem to solve? Ann Morris and Francis Fry want to help you. They're leadership coaches who have solved problems at some of the world's biggest companies. Now they're sharing their expertise with you on their podcast, Fixable. No dilemma is too big or too small. Call 234-FIXABLE to fix your issues in 30 minutes or less. Really? Once again, that's 234-FIXABLE. And don't forget to tune into Fixable to hear their problem solving in action. Back to the show. And can I give an example of how this showed up Please. recently? Um, yes. <laughs> so I was I was leading a retreat. I was getting ready to lead a retreat um, last fall, and I had everyone signed up. I had only worked with like one or two of the people attending in the past, and so I thought, okay, I'm gonna have. We're all gonna get on a call of like it was like a week before the in person event. Um, I was like, we're all gonna get on this call just to kind of introduce each other, and so that people kind of know who they're gonna be in this experience with and just to kind of alleviate their nerves. But also on the back end, I'm like, this is also going to give me intel in terms of like, who is going to be there and what do they need? And what are they what do they see as their strengths and talents? And also what do they see as their, um, you know, the, the areas that they really want to grow. And I was a little bit prepared to be to like have my own imposter syndrome to be mm -hmm. like the, some of these people coming in who were, you know, high level executive kinds of women. And I thought they're going to come in with problems I'm not going to be able to solve because like I've never been a top, you know, a VP of a company. Mm -hmm. So, so I was yeah. like, I'm going to have to like figure this out between like this call and this retreat. And so I'm listening my to them. My anxiety is building right now hearing right? you. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, like oh my how God. do I like go get a PhD really quick, like in a week? Right? 
<laughs> so, um, so we're, we're on the call and we talk through like what everyone does. They introduce themselves. They talk about what their favorite thing about their work and where their strengths are. And then I say like, what, you know, what's a, an obstacle for you right now? What's something that you really want to work through with this retreat? What's the reason that you signed up? Because it's an area of struggle. And they, the first person who goes, and I was you know, so thankful. I'm like, thank you so much for volunteering to go first. And I'm prepared for this, like really big out, not outlandish, but like big, you know, ex- exposure of this um, vo- point of vulnerability. And she said, well, I'm, I'm just worried. I just um, struggle with confidence in my role. And I was like, the what? You? <laughs> because of oh who, like her role, the company that she works for. She does high profile public facing work in that role. So I'm like, if anyone on this call would have like all the confidence in the world, it would be this woman. And she's like, sometimes I just really, I feel like I'm faking it. I just, I just don't like, and I really want to work through some of that. So she goes first and says this. And I was said, thank you so much for going first. Um, I know that really gives other permission to be really vulnerable and honest and transparent. So then everyone else goes, and like all of them said some version of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, this wow. is all I've been talking about for eight years. And I thought like, it was going to be like different level, different problems. And I was like, Oh no, like we're all on the same level. It's all the same problems, all on the same level. But in our minds, we have it all compartmentalized in different places. So we're like, Oh, well, like a VP in tech would have like totally different problems, like quote unquote, bigger problems or like unrelatable problems compared to like maybe someone who's in more an entry level position in a non-tech sector. And not really. <laughs> and so mm. that was really, really eye-opening for me. And then kind of to hear it across, you know, multiple companies and multiple roles and multiple um, levels um, in that group, I was like, okay, here we are. Like everyone's kind of the same. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really a pervasive issue. And do you find it, is it in your estimation, like a pretty female problem? Or do you think this also extends across the gender spectrum? Is everybody just like, holy crap, right. like how? So that's how- such a great question. I um, was on doing a training for a mixed gender group like a year ago, a virtual training. And I came in with some data about perfectionism in women. And which is rampant and perfectionism is like a direct result of struggles with um, confidence and like feeling like you have to overprove and overdo and overproduce to prove yourself. And so I give, gave this data on perfectionism in women and a woman on in the chat said, my husband really struggles with this too. And then a couple other women were like mine too. And then a couple guys on the chat were like, yeah, this is for sure present in men. And I hadn't because these calls are really predominantly women, this was a specific community that I was working with or organization that I was working with. I hadn't done the research on the men because I was like, oh, well, I'm catering to the women. It's like 95% female on this call. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's your business. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, I was making assumptions again, making assumptions like, well, this is like <laughs> mostly a female thing. Like, cause right. in my world, I don't have dudes walking around me in my world who are like, yeah, like I really struggle with per- perfectionism. It really holds me back. Right. But it was Dudes aren't like that. They don't <laughs> say it. They don't say and also, it. Yes. Like I'm curious if these women who are identifying like my husband or my partner really struggles with this. I'm like, is this because of your observation or are they saying it? Because I'm still yes. not sure that men are saying it, but it might very much be true. And I think especially yeah. in um, you know, in industries that are more cutthroat, i.e. tech and I, but like there's mm-hmm. definitely more um, industries that are more cutthroat. And I think I think it probably is across all genders. I still think because of the social conditioning of women that it is so prevalent and so pervasive in 
women um, and people socialized as women. Like, I just think there's no escaping that. And it's more culturally acceptable to talk about it. And it's almost like a little bit of a badge of honor. Like, well, I'm just really a perfectionist. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I've actually thrown that out the window. I'm now like perfectionism is my worst enemy because I, I use it to procrastinate. Oh, I'm not ready for this because it's not perfect yet. And it means nothing happens. And I'm like, did I actually leverage that as a crutch? Like now, if I were going into an interview and someone asked me what my, my worst, you know, quality was right. I, I mean you're trained over time or at least i was back in the day oh yeah i'm a perfectionist it's like a good problem i'm like actually right. if i'm a leader at a company and someone tells me they're a perfectionist i'm not hiring them because i'm like shit's never gonna get done you know like you're gonna ruminate you're gonna stew you're obsessed and things are not gonna move forward so i actually think it's like the worst thing you could say you shoot yourself in the foot so i've been trying to actively push it out so i'm like done is better than perfect you know that's like a new it's a new creed but i i learned that over time and age and experience so mm-hmm. <laughs> it took a while but yeah yes. i mean yeah. i think there's a lot that kind of binds us together as humans that, you know, we're such a divided society, right. And it's men versus women versus, you know, liberal versus Republican, all, all of the things, right. We're so divided, but maybe there's much more of an underlying unifying sort of concern over this perception and not being good enough. That is just kind of an anchoring principle of being human. And I wish people felt of all genders felt more empowered to talk about it. And I do think that work like yours is doing good in getting people to grapple with it a little bit openly, like even if it's just with themselves at first, but like starting a conversation about this stuff is so critically important uh, because it really lays bare that this is a pretty universal thing, right? And um, it's something that's, I think, really detrimental. And I hope that because of these types of conversations and these types of sessions and retreats and and organizations that are being built around this sort of a topic that our children can actually be better prepared to take on the world in a way in which we were not enabled, right? Right. So, Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you've learned over the course of having these open conversations. Your podcast is fantastic, by the way. So we're going to link that in the show notes. And I hope everybody Thank goes you. and checks it out. And you've been at this for a long time too, Sarah. I mean, you're like who I want to be when I grow up, basically. You've been <laughs> a podcaster in the game since like 27 You're OG. So um, maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you've learned over the course of having mm-hmm. these conversations and and some of the maybe some of your top findings from having these discussions. Sure. One of the things that just came to mind as you were speaking, that's been eye-opening for me, but also I think really eye-opening for the people that I work with, whether it's been inside my, you know, I had a membership community for five years inside the Shameless Mom Academy, which is the podcast. So within that membership community, I saw this happen all the time. But now as I'm more and more working with corporate teams and in organizational environments, I see this happening as well. And it's so interesting. And I'm like, it kind of happened by accident and I'm so glad. So I do a lot of work with groups and what I, I know, like, I know doing, doing work with groups is everyone wins. Like it's a place to be seen. It's a place to be, place to be heard, to be held, to be valued, all these different things. People want to champion you, cheer for you, encourage you. It keeps you accountable. Like there's all these great things about doing things in group settings and building community with groups. But what's really, really helpful or, or helpful that I didn't see coming. And I think so beneficial is that when you sit in a group, whether it's a group of women or a group of mixed gender people, if you can create a space where people feel comfortable and safe enough to be a little bit vulnerable, as we see each other open up, we see 
this side of people that they don't maybe commonly or frequently share with others. And right away we think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they feel scared or that they feel vulnerable or that they feel, you know, um, that they struggle with confidence or they feel, you know, not prepared or qualified in their role or that they worry about things or have anxiety or struggle with perfectionism, any of those things. And when we see that in someone else, we right away want to tell them, you're so great at what you do. And I see you being strong and I see how capable you are. And oh my gosh, like you've helped me so many times. And you're you know, like, to your point, you're who I want to be when I grow up. Like we have this adoration <laughs> for other people. And when we see that everyone's struggling, we suddenly recognize, I think, not only how we want to support one another, but we also recognize, oh my gosh, that's what I do too. This person who I'm looking at, who I thought had it all together, is just sharing all the ways that they don't feel like they have it together. And it's eye-opening for people to watch that and recognize, oh, wait, I act like I don't have it all together. And maybe I have it more together than I thought, but I wasn't giving myself credit. And so I think that that piece can be, it's almost like this reflective reflection in coaching where other people become mirrors of ourself. And then we think, Oh my gosh, like I didn't realize that I was showing up that way. Um, and this has happened to me in all sorts of group settings, but it's so helpful for other people to see themselves that way and recognize where they're really at versus kind of where their inner critic has put them for a long time. And then checking that and checking their ego and checking that inner critic to be like, hold on a second. And in the, a lot of the work, I am a step into your Moxie certified facilitator. So a lot of the work I do with groups is teaching them how to step into their Moxie, how to use their coach voice, how to, um, you know, be a self-advocate and how to advocate for their ideas and also advocate for other people. And one of the things that's so incredibly helpful at the very beginning of that process, when you're just getting started is recognizing like, what is your inner critic saying? And what is, how is that so detrimental? And then how do you cultivate your inner coach? As you do when you're in a group with people, you start to become like your coach voice comes out to other people where you're like, that's not true. You're great at this. Like, mm -hmm. I want to see you shine this way. Yes. But we don't talk to ourselves that way. So how can we, we cultivate that inner coach um, as well? Oh my gosh, Sarah, I, I can tell you an experience I had recently. So I was interviewing someone and you know how sometimes you just don't necessarily feel like you're on, right? Like you're doing an interview and you're like, oh, it's just, I'm not nailing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just had this narrative in my head, like, wow, I'm really not doing great. This is not my best stuff. And I kept apologizing, which is something that I really want to work on too. As a female, we're real good at apologizing, mm -hmm. but I would say, sorry, you know, I've ADD or sorry. I, you know, I, I just was kind of scatterbrained. And thankfully, of course, with editing software, I edited that part out, <laughs> but good job. But I, after the fact, listened to the interview and I was like, dude, that was a good interview. And the whole time, yeah. my narrative in my head was, wow, Maureen, you suck. This is not good stuff. And hearing it back, I'm like, objectively, that was a good interview. What was my problem? And so yeah. I have to now at this day and age, like always telling myself that it is better than I think it is in the moment. Like it's, mm -hmm. you're always your worst critic. And we just really get in our own way there. And it's something that I'm actively working on all the time. And you know, Sarah, I'm thinking about like women, specifically women, but also just parents, because I, I really want to speak to parents in tech too, because it's not just moms who parent, <laughs> as it turns out, yes, right? And yes. I want to do away with the concept of the working mom, unless we're going to pull working dad in there too, mm -hmm. uh, which we never will, of course. So, um, but I want to talk about, you know, where and how do we carve out the space to own our status as a parent in the workplace? Like this, this mm -hmm. extends beyond tech, but I, I can tell you, 
I personally have felt like a little bit sheepish about actually admitting that I have children to, mm-hmm. to myself and others yeah. in the tech industry um, because I don't think it helps me. So for example, when I go and I interview, I pretty much expressly don't mention children during the interview process because I know that there, there's only one thing unless it's a rapport building exercise, right? That will come from that. And that's the possibility that someone will have a bias against me as a potential employee. So setting myself up to have that not weigh in my favor, but how do you think we can step up and own that status at work and still thrive in our careers? Such an important question. So it depends on where you're at. And this is my answer for so many things. I think that You have to know if the environment that you're in is a safe enough environment for you to be able to show who you truly are. And there's like, I want to say like you put out there who you are and if people don't like it too bad, but also like, if you got to pay the bills and have the medical insurance, like, please don't risk that (laughs) because (laughs) you're like wanting to shine too brightly and be like, I have kids and then like have that be compromised. And so there's always this delicate balance of like, what is actually safe to portray in the workplace. And that's so different from one landscape to the next. And so I think that you have to gauge that, you know, on a case by case scenario and determine what's right for you. And I do think that that involves like getting in there and then kind of reading the culture. And it's not just about like reading the core values on a website before you go to an interview, because we know that <laughs> those core values. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it's so disgusting and maddening how many companies don't live their core values in any way, Great. shape or form. And so you might look at their core values and be like, oh, it seems like they're like, you know, kind of family, family forward. And like, you know, it seems like they might cater to flexible schedules and, you know, being inclusive. And then you get in and you're like, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Sarah, you just so, described several experiences in my past. Right. right there, very succinctly. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that you really have to gauge like, where is it safe and where is it not? And advocate for yourself, like be your own biggest advocate in that way. I've had, I have a number of friends in the LGBTQ plus community who we, who talk about this all the time in terms of like, how much do you let your identity, if you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community show up in the workplace? And the answer, and I have a close friend who's um, a therapist and does a lot of this work. And that friend always says, it's all about where, what's safe and what's not. And to the individual, like the company might say that something is safe, but it's only up to the individual to determine that it's actually safe. When I do work in groups, I will say, like, I think it's absolutely BS to be like, this is a safe place. No one can determine that it's a safe place except for every single person sitting in the room. And every person is going to require something different for safety. So I can say, here's some community agreements I would like to have in place today so that we can keep things as safe as possible. Here's what I want to do to start us, like to help us build some trust from the get-go but I can't promise that this is a safe place. And I also can't promise that it's going to be confidential because that's not how the real world works. And I think people are shocked when I say that because every company wants to be like, no, 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 it's a safe place. Not really. And you're doing it just like you're breaking down trust when you say it's safe and then you continually prove that it's not, or you continually don't rise to the occasion to really demonstrate what psychological safety is and the massive investment that it takes over time to actually create safety for every person. 
That's so true. And that's why I actually really don't love the whole advice of you bring your whole self to work, bring your authentic self to work. I'm like, sometimes you can't, like, you just can't do that because there isn't, like you said, that psychological safety within the organization. And it can be even very team specific, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it it doesn't necessarily, it might be at the, you know, the tippy top of the organization written on the walls with the, the cultural values of the company and whatnot, core values of the company. But it really, I think, it trickles down to that individual manager and their team level. So I just don't think it's one size fits all. So I love that you actually anchor your trainings with that because that's Mm -hmm. super honest. Like I hope people won't go talk, you know, run their mouths off about what you're going through, but I can't, you're not in charge of all the people who are in that training. Right. So I love that. Hey, quick break here. If you or anyone you know are looking for a new tech job and you're aiming for a company that understands the value of experienced workers, sign up for our email list where we'll send you jobs from companies that we hand select as a fit for tech employees over 40. Go to itgetsleteearly.com and add your email. Now back to the show. And to your point that it can be different in different pockets within the same organization. And so I've had clients for sure where they're like, my team is great or where like, and oftentimes they're the leader on the team. So like the team that I lead of this people, of these folks think, you know, we have each other's back and we have built trust over time and we have really great rapport and camaraderie and we adore each other and we stand up for each other, but managing up totally different, like not safety, not like there's not room for difference of opinions or bringing vulnerable vulnerabilities to the workplace or to have any like needs that are, you know, outside of a certain realm. So it's like upholding a status quo there while like building out this really, you know, perhaps progressive um, dynamic team environment within your own, either the team that you're leading or within your own kind of sector of the organization um, and that's a lot to navigate, to be like, okay, like it's safe here, but not there. I can be this 100%. person here, but not there. And I think that that's really, really tricky. It is so tricky. And you kind of have to test it out to find out, right? Like there's yes. there's really, you just have to, to go for it and then see what happens. Like there's a very, I think it's very hard to gauge unless you actually take a step off the ledge a little bit. And I can mm-hmm. tell you, you know, I've been at organizations where they're like, we want to hear different opinions. And then you give your different opinion and they're like, hate your opinion. You didn't drink the Kool-Aid. And now somehow you're not going to be invited to these meetings or we're going to not give you the team member we promised you or your initiative is going to not get the funding we told you was gonna like that happens too and so Mm -hmm. you don't really know until you take a step into the arena and give it a shot so right which sucks because to your earlier point like at times we're talking about like health insurance paycheck like roof over your head that sort of stuff it's like these are really big stakes and you don't know as an employee what the reception is going to be when you take a move into the arena. And, and so that's just, I think, an unfortunate truth about being an employee. You just don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I do think that it's really important. And this is a, one of the things I work on a lot with the, when I'm working with um, groups and organizations, I think it's really important that if you are a member of a marginalized, underrepresented, historically underestimated, commonly excluded community, that when you want to test the waters that you're doing it in a way that is really low stakes, low exposure to begin with. And so if you're coming in as like a woman of color or a person of color from the LGBTQ plus community or, you know, or a person with a disability or like all these different potential um, identities, I think that you can't go in 
and, or you don't want to go in in a really high stakes situation and make that be like your test. <laughs> and instead Agreed. make it be like, I'm just going to like, when we're ordering lunch as a team, I'm just going to like, say like, Hmm, have we thought about having vegan options? Like, just to feel <laughs> out, like, is it okay to have an opposing opinion? Is it okay to yeah. make an idea, you know, to put another idea point. out there? And that's like low stakes to recognize, like, are people going to immediately roll their eyes? Are they going to like laugh? Or are they going to be like, Oh, that's such a great point. We definitely want to make sure that vegetarians have an option here too. Like there's so much in that really low stakes conversation that you can be like, Oh, okay. Like it's okay to push the boundaries or ask for something different or speak up on the behalf of another group. And then, you know, like next time it can be like a little higher exposure, maybe a little bit higher stakes, but you're not like immediately going to like, Hey, so I just want to like talk about, you know, disability advocacy in the workplace. <laughs> if you're a member of that group and like that could be really yeah. high risk for you. It can, it can. And I feel like also sometimes that can lend itself to, to people having undue pressure as being a representative of an underrepresented group, like then you are the spokesperson for that group, which I think is like a slippery slope danger zone as well. Potentially it's just too much. It's too much to put on someone's shoulders. Yes. And I mean, we could probably talk for a whole hour about the sure advent of ERGs post 2020. Mm. Oh boy. Yeah. I know. Because and who's how much leading all those ERGs for free? No, exactly for free. Like, please come unpack your trauma for the benefit of the top of this company so they can say they checked the box. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's very frustrating, very frustrating mm -hmm. stuff. When it comes to advocacy for parents and caregivers in the workplace, I, I know, especially as we age, you know, I would say that at least on the coasts for sure that I've observed, and I'm sure there's statistics to back this up, like the average age of, of parenting, it, it's creeping up, right? Like people are having kids later and later, if they're having kids at all, otherwise they're, you know, child-free, not childless. But um, um, yes. this is, so, so this is something that I think really kind of intersects with older people in the workplace at this point being parents, right? And then also people's aging parents and relatives, there's the whole sort of sandwich element, right? Where you might have younger children um, or even children in their teens and older parents, and you're kind of stuck in this caregiver space. So what are some tips that you might have for people who are at the workplace who want to improve conditions, working conditions, flexibility, all the things that working parents need? How would you perhaps like start that conversation or start to assess how how good your work is at supporting those people? I'm going to use an example from my husband's past role. So he, during the pandemic, people were trying, you know, everyone's engaging on Zoom, doing virtual work for the first time. It's like a disaster <laughs> initially for most people. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> um, and also we went from doing things that like we thought were absolutely impossible to doing things that could work in new ways. And then maybe sometimes allowed for people to thrive in new ways. So one of the things that he did with his team is that every Monday morning they would have a meeting. And when they did their check-ins um, every Monday, it was a check-in around like, Hey, how was your weekend? It wasn't like an, uh, like give an update on a, a project. It was like, how was your weekend? And everyone kind of goes around and says how their weekend was. The amount you can learn about a, some, about a person by just asking them how their weekend was then creates a space to recognize, oh, so now I can also see where they might have some needs. And so things could come up anywhere from caretaking children to caretaking parents to caretaking pets to, you know, being, you know, having a lease be up and having to move or having like a, a struggle with a neighbor or like all sorts of different things come up or being excited about a vacation because they love traveling and they love to see like go to a different country every year. So you learn all these things about people and then you're like, okay, so 
now I can now I can see people's needs. So I think it really comes from building authentic relationships with each other so that you can see each other as humans and not see each other as like checklists and check boxes, but you're seeing each other as humans. Once we're seeing each other as humans, then we can see what people need and how different people need different things. I did this with my team. Um, we used to have a Monday morning meeting with my team of three other people in my business a couple of years ago. And what was so interesting is I noticed over time, two of us always were really excited to talk about our weekend. And then the other two were like, would always hang back. And initially I was like, maybe they didn't have good weekends. And like, maybe we're being too shiny. Like, and then this happened and it was great. And this happened. <laughs> well, over time we, I realized I'm like, oh, the two of us who always go first and we're real into it, we're the extroverts, the introverts. They're like, they want to hang back. And they want to tell you like the one thing from their weekend that was really meaningful. The extroverts were like, let's, we're going to tell you 50 things. And we can't even <laughs> discern which was the most benefit of like the best thing. We're just like, we did all these things, see all these things. But like the introvert is like, I have one sentence for you. And it was not only was it like this one really specific moment, but they're going to say it in the most like beautiful, eloquent, meaningful way where you're like, I just learned like a whole life lesson from hearing what this person did over their weekend, because that's how <laughs> introverts are. Like they don't need to verbally process to get to the one magical sentence. Like they can think it through and then save, have the patience it's to say gift. it. Um, it's it's gift. such a gift. So it became <laughs> this kind of joke that we had because they would always hold back. And then sometimes I'd be like, maybe the introverts want to go first this weekend, this Monday or what? And they're like, no. <laughs> Like, maybe we don't want to go at all. They're like, we're still formulating. So yeah. it's really recognizing how people like giving space for everyone to say what they need or what their experience is or put, give their input in a way that is that speaks to who they are. And sometimes a, a lot of times people don't know immediately. People can't answer a question immediately. They don't have an immediate idea. But when extroverts are bulldozing everything, then it looks like certain people are less qualified or have less to offer or are less innovative because the extroverts, they just went in and they just took care of the whole thing before the introverts even had a chance to like fully formulate what are the actual problems and causes in order to then come up with a reasonable solution. Yeah. No, that's really true. I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of elements to to that that really don't come up enough at work. People mm -hmm. should be a little bit more mindful of that. So I love that you're being thoughtful about that. And one thing I'd love to talk to you too about is is the concept of this sort of this mommy tax, right? Like that you are devalued potentially just for the fact that you are a mother in the workplace. Um, I don't suspect that the same is true for fathers. And if, if anything, I think there is this sort of latent expectation that like, oh, someone else is taking care of your kids. Like people mm -hmm. never ask, you know, business leaders, titans of business, male titans of business, you know, well, how do you do it all? Right. Like people right. don't give that question to men. So talk to me a little bit about your perception of, of what the mommy tax is and like what we can do to overcome it in our, in our roles at these corporate and tech environments. Yeah. So adding on to what you just said that we don't ask dads how they do it all. We also, yeah. when we learn that a dad is coaching their team, they're like, Oh, he's so involved. He's oh, such yeah. an involved Constantly. dad. So all of a sudden we're like, Oh, he's like a soccer coach of like the first grade girls. 
He is amazing. He's a like, saint. Look at him. Look at mm-hmm. him being the coach. Like, of course, because he's so positive and he's inspirational. Those qualities, like in an employer, they're like, oh, the mom is coaching the soccer team. Gosh, that means she can have to leave like two days a week at three o'clock. And <laughs> it's like the exact same thing. So I know many people who... Do, I know many women who don't put pictures of their family on their desk at work. And I know many women or many mm-hmm. men who do. And mm-hmm. it is culturally perceived very differently. So a man puts pictures on his desk and it's like, oh, look at him. Like he's a human being. This is so great. He's like, he must have a saw. He's a gentle giant and such a teddy bear, blah, 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 blah. And then a woman puts them on her desk and it's like this assumption like, oh, she might have a lot of needs or she might be like not totally like emotionally and like mentally available because she's like thinking about what she has to make for dinner. (laughs) And so I think what we need to do is have way more open conversations that this is how it really is. I think that people that it's just not acknowledged that this is the reality. And I think that when the most, the, People who have the majority of power don't recognize that this is what it is and how true this is, then like nothing's going to change. So until a bunch of dudes can say, it's really awesome when a mom is coaching the soccer team and needs to leave at three o'clock instead of it being like so inspiring and she's such an involved mom, (laughs) then like we continue to not have the power. And we see this across any underestimated, underrepresented group any commonly excluded group, the people who have to make the change have to be the people with power because the people who are spinning their wheels without the power, like they're just spinning their wheels. They can make traction over, build traction over time and build um, movement over time, but it takes way longer. And then it's always like, there's always move movement along the slope. I mean, we've seen this with women's reproductive rights, like where we can make progress with this massive heavy lift and also, I mean, is it really permanent? Obviously not. <laughs> so, not so I think so I think that we have to have men who are willing to recognize this, who are we have to have men who are really openly feminists. And I don't think that yes. that's a thing in corporate culture. It's a there's women it's a are, dirty are, word. Oh my gosh, like no <laughs> man is putting up like <laughs> proud feminist on his wall. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, if he is, please can we be friends? Do you know that the like literal definition definition of that is that you just think men and women should be equal? And yes. it's like that word carries like bra burning, like, you know, all, all of the angry, irate, like angry woman, they, like all of that. But feminism just means you think that the genders are equal. That's all it means. So yeah, I agree with you. And I feel like a huge problem with DEIB is that so many of the people advocating, like you said, are the people who are, you know, at the helm who are just members of that underrepresented group. We need people in the positions of powers to be to power to be there leading the charge. That's how we get farther faster. And there's the glass cliff and everything else in women's way. But I I really think that there's something to like representation. And if you can see it, then you can be it. And I that's something that I know for me, I wish I had more mentors and examples of women in the tech industry who have made it and are killing it and also are mothers. And, um, you know, that's something that I think is in short supply. And there are all sorts of problems with that, the fact that that's the case. But um, I really, one thing stuck with me over time when I became a mother, I had asked my mentor at a past company, you know, like, how, how do you, I asked her the question that I would never ask anyone as a journalist, how do you do it all? Right. And she was like, listen, I think mothers and parents are the most ruthlessly efficient people in the workplace because they have to be Yes, right. They 100%, get more shit yeah. done. 
Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I hope we get to a point where I can confidently walk into an interview and be like, yo, I've got two kids. <laughs> like I'm super busy, but I'm going to kill it. Right. Like I, mm-hmm. I hope we get there, but right now I'm, I'm not sure I could say that. I, I think it's a, a touch and go situation that's right. super dependent on the organization and specifically the hiring manager and recruiter in, in that specific work. Right. Um, and I think we have to it, get better at recognizing how women, we have to get better at labeling skill sets that come with motherhood and making those resume builders. And yeah. there's very, I don't think that, I don't think that happens regularly. And women are definitely not socialized to do that on their own. So you have to be in a pretty specific place and time to be like, oh, wait, this skill set from motherhood translates to something I can put on my resume where I can be yes. like, oh, like everything I do in motherhood is actually project management. Yes. <laughs> so yes. like, oh, I'm like building teams and I'm like creating <laughs> deadlines and, ch- and flow charts. And like, that's like all we do all day, every day. Um, so, so I think true. that's really important. And I also think that well, I used to do a training about self women and self-trust, which I still do all the time, but I used to make it exclusively for women. And when I would go into organizations, I would say like, this is for, you know, your women's groups and what have you. And what was happening over and over again is we would get to the end of the training and the training talked about how women's self-trust is eroded through nine stages over the course of their life. And then how they can build back self-trust and reconnect to their sense of intuition after this social conditioning has t- t- torn it all down for them. And we would get to the end of these conversations and these trainings and the women in the room would say, I wish my male counterparts heard this because it's one thing for me to like learn it and see it and connect the dots, which is hugely eye-opening. But if our male counterparts can also be seeing seeing it and hearing it, that is so eye-opening for them. So I started then making it more broad across, well, I would started making and creating invitations for mixed gender audiences to come to this training And then I broadened it a little bit to talk about the socialization of men and women and non-binary people and how the socialization of all of us has us undermining our trust in different ways. So men's self-trust is undermined by like, don't show emotion, don't be too soft, blah, blah, blah. Women is in other way, like make, be small, be cute, be quiet, be courteous, always be smiling, dress the right way, be the right size, like don't ever have a belly fat, all these different things. So when we look at, if men can recognize the social conditioning of women and how our trust has been eroded over the course of our lives and women for men. And then also for non-binary people who have the, I mean, the way that their self-trust has been eroded over the course of time, trying to find a place to fit in is a whole much larger conversation. And when we can all be in the same room, seeing that in each other, all of a sudden, now we know where we're starting from and we have a common place to see each other and recognize wow, like I never thought about it that way. I never thought about how maybe I contributed to that. I never thought about how that might feel. I didn't realize it was so rampant. I didn't realize that this started when we were like two years old. And so (laughs) when all of us are coming into a room with social conditioning that started at such a young age, it's like, we all have to unpack that with each other, for each other. (laughs) Yes, Um, we do. Yeah, so it's valuable to have circles that are like women only for sure. But also, I think a lot of times men are then excluded from conversations that they yes. actually really need to be privy to. They need to be there and nothing will change if they're not. And I think that's right. the element of, of this that I think I really hope people start shifting. Like it, it can't be a finger pointing game, right? Like right. the system of work is broken. It's not yeah. men. It's not, you know, it's like we, we have right. to 
bring everybody together to fight towards it. And, you know, one thing that we're all marching towards is, is getting older, right? Every single second of every day, we're getting older. Mm -hmm. And ageism is the one thing that actually is going to impact all of us. Age bias is very real. And that's obviously the subject of this podcast, but, um, you know, we really need to band together and center the organization around like a variety of people and bring them all together to, to combat the systems in place. So Yes, I think what yeah. you're doing is really beautiful. And this episode is not just for women. It's for everyone. Like everyone can take something away from this. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I think you've really imparted a lot on the audience and I love what you're doing with your podcast. I'm, like I said, going to link all of it in the show notes and support you however I can. Um, can't wait to meet you actually in person in Seattle. And just thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh my it. gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. And yeah, definitely a, a, a conversation for all. <laughs> for all to for listen all. to learn <laughs> Yes, please. Everybody listen up. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today at It Gets Late Early. I hope this episode was insightful and entertaining. Now, before you go, if you're old and work in tech, just like me, I have something really cool for you. We're putting together a job board specifically for seasoned tech workers, where we'll curate the best opportunities for experienced tech talent. If you want a place to look for work where you can trust there won't be so much bias in the hiring process, go to itgetsleteearly.com and sign up so you'll be the first to know when we launch it. Thanks and see you next time.